Welcome to Worthy, the podcast of RGC Resource and Governance Consulting. I'm Dr. Lisa Miller, CEO of RGC, and you're listening to the next installment in the Confidence Series. During the Confidence Series of the Worthy podcast, we'll explore the worth of a business beyond finances. The worth of a business is made up of two parts. The first part is the numbers, the income, profit, sales, ratio. All of those things are the known pieces of the value of a company. The more subjective, some would say mysterious piece of the value of a business is involved with the operation of the business, the internal structure, employee engagement, customer engagement how well the company functions day to day. These things comprise the sustainability of a company and on many levels contribute to the worth of a business to outsiders. This podcast series is an exploration of those other factors beyond the numbers and how to better grasp their importance in delivering a business's worth. Today we're talking with Michael Agresti, who is a partner at the Marsh Schaff Law Firm in Erie, PA. Michael has 22 years of experience working with clients in all areas of law in both the business and personal law realms. Thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about what you do. Well, over the last probably 10 years, Lisa, I have tried to position myself as an outside general counsel for small and mid-sized businesses. And it's kind of a novel concept, I think, in this area, but it's something that is uh, pretty widespread around the country. There are companies out there, businesses that just don't have the revenue or need for a full-time in-house counsel. So what my clients have found is that they can have an outside general counsel that they can call upon really any time of the day when an issue comes up within their business that has any possible legal issue. So for example, it might be an employee issue. Perhaps they have a problem with an employee and they're not sure what to do. Uh, they, they call upon someone like me, who's their outside general counsel. Maybe it's a real estate deal. Maybe they're thinking about buying the piece of property next to their business, and they just need some, some quick feedback. Um, that's, I've, I've had a broad practice, and it allows me to uh, service those kind of clients that need those quick interactions with the lawyer, uh, which will then possibly develop into to bigger engagements, uh, you know, real estate transaction or potentially a lawsuit with that employee. So, but it's it's that ability to to be there for them in a moment's notice, as if they, I was down the hall, you know, as their general counsel. So let's just define a little more clearly your client base. So, what size of businesses are we talking about? Are for profit, nonprofit? It's a little bit of both. Most of my clients are for profit entities, um, and they can range in size from as little as five employees uh, up to as large as a hundred employees. Um, you know, represent a number of, uh, of, of businesses that are in the service industry, um, some are in sales, uh, some are in construction. Uh, so it really runs the gamut. Excellent. Okay, so tell us what your day-to-day is like. So um, are you dealing with the uh, day-to-day functioning of any one particular business on a regular basis, or are you more intermittent? You know, it, it, it's... Um, it's a little bit hectic, frankly, um, because I, I get calls all day from different clients. So I, I am having to jump from one client to the next throughout the day. Uh, but that's the nature of the business. Um, you know, I, I may not hear from a particular client for a few months and then all of a sudden they've got several emergencies at the same time. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's the way that the, that's the way the business world works. Um, you know, you can go months without needing to talk to your lawyer um, and it all some, seems to hit at once. So 
I find myself uh, juggling between clients and uh, that requires you know, good staff, which, which we have at our law firm. And it requires uh, some good time management, which, uh, you know, is always a work in progress for any professional, but uh, something that I, I've tried to build over the 22 years of, of practice. So no doubt you have some great um, reflections on things that people could have done differently in the past. What are some of the things that come to mind? Well, the, the biggest thing that, that I see and, and have seen for, for all these years of doing this is that um, whether it's myself who's drafted an agreement or other lawyers who have drafted agreements for business clients, the fact that they don't use them, it's really frustrating because um, if they just had used the documents that we had created for them, they would avoid a lot of the problems that they find themselves in, you know, a few months after entering into the deal or a year after entering into the deal. Um, it's just, it's an unfortunate, I, I guess, reflection on where we are in society. But when, for example, when my grandfather was practicing law in the 40s and 50s, uh, handshake deals were were good and, and people, you know, upheld them. Um, it's just not that way anymore. Uh, everything needs to be documented. And it's, it's remarkable to me that in this day and age, um, very, very smart business owners are still not seeing that. As much as, as I know I drive it into them as much as I can, and I know other good lawyers in Erie are doing the same thing, they're, they're telling them, you know, use the documents that we've created, or if we haven't created one yet, just call us, send us an email, tell us what you're up to. It won't take us that long to document what it is you're about to do with this third party or with this prospective employee or whatever the case may be. Um, but for whatever reason, I think a lot of times it's, it's their fear of the, the cost. Uh, they don't call us and, or they don't email us and then they find themselves in a jam. And um, at that point, it becomes a litigation matter or a potential litigation matter. And it's really expensive. And, and for, you know, a lot of my business clients, um, fortunately, they haven't been through litigation, but when they go through that first one, it's a painful lesson. It's a painful lesson in, boy, I wish I had listened to you or I wish I had thought to call you, you know, eight months ago when I decided to enter into this deal with this person. So to go back for a second about the verbal contracts or any verbal agreements, can, so do those hold up at all? Well, they, there are oral contracts and, and the courts will uphold them. Uh, the problem is proving them. And, and, it, and you, it comes down if uh, if there are no, for example, emails confirming what was said or even now text messages can be helpful in proving an oral contract. Um, but if there's none of that and all you really have is what, what I say our deal is versus what you say our deal is, it becomes a credibility issue in, in either a judge or a jury ultimately, if the parties don't settle the case, is going to decide who's telling the truth. Um, and, in, and in some deals, they're so complex that, that neither party really remembers what the details of, of, of the arrangement were. So um, they are binding. Oral contracts can be binding. They're just extremely difficult to prove if you need to prove them. So we as lawyers certainly don't recommend them. And it's not out of self-preservation for our jobs. Um, it's, it's, it's really because the cost of doing them up front is is minuscule compared to the cost of litigating them after the fact. And I think it's it's a really good reminder to business owners to go back and look at your contracts once in a while or frequently to see what they actually state. I know in my experience with um, uh, faculty, when I worked in higher education, we would live and die by the faculty handbook. And it's in some forms a contract. 
And as soon as something would happen, we would always pull out the handbook and say, okay, so what was supposed to happen in this situation? And that was, it was comforting actually. And so that's one of the things that I see with for-profit businesses is they don't do some of those things that could actually give them a little bit of solace. Yeah, the contracts get stale over time. Uh, technology changes and the technological changes can impact the contract. You know, for example, uh, I insert into contracts now that, that PDF signatures are going to be valid because it's just much easier in today's world to not have to you know, worry about getting the ink signatures to one another. Uh, the PDF should be good enough. Um, you know, and, and, and if you're going to want to make sure that text messages are a part of your business communications, you might want to mention that in your contract. I mean, some some businesses survive on text messaging. It's, it's evolved over the last couple of years. And, you know, a lot of my communications with clients now are, are via text. So times change and, and with it, the contracts should change. Also, the laws change. And, you know, for example, uh, with my contracting clients, um, over the years, last couple of years, there have been changes to the laws regarding the contracts that you can enter into with homeowners. And there's specific laws and specific um, sections of those laws that define exactly what must be in your written contract. And I can't tell you how many contractors are out there in Pennsylvania operating without legal contracts. Um, and and it's, not, it's not intentional on their part. Right, right. They're just out there, you know, putting roofs on and, and doing their thing. Um, and, they're, and they're not really thinking about legal matters. Um, I, I really um, encourage small business owners, mid-sized business owners to think of their attorney like their accountant. Talk to them at least once a year. You know, you see your accountant every year for your taxes. You, you might want to do a business health checkup with your with your attorney for an hour or two every year. Even if you don't have a pending issue, just let them know what you're up to. Show them the contracts that you're using. Let them take a look at it. Make sure that the contracts are, are up to date, that they have provisions that are really beneficial to you as the business owner. Um, because, you know, the, the ones that the, the, the people are pulling off the internet, and a lot of them are, they're not bad. They're not bad contracts. They're better than nothing. They're better than an oral contract, I'll tell you that. Um, but oftentimes they don't have provisions in them that, that you know, for, it would take me 10 minutes to add the provision to it, and it could mean the difference in, um, in the case. And I can give you a good example. Um, a lot of contracts don't have attorney's fee provisions. And they're usually buried at the end of a contract and people don't even think about them until a lawsuit happens. And if you have that provision in your contract and, and you're in the right, you know, you're, for, for example, you're collecting on a, on a debt that is really not questioned. It's just the amount is not that great. And the other side is thinking, now they're not really going to hire a lawyer to go after this, you know, $10,000 bill. It'll cost them just as much to do that. Well, if you have a contract that has an attorney's fee provision, uh, they think a little differently about that first demand letter when they're reminded, oh boy, not only will I have to pay the 10 grand, I might also have to pay the attorney's fees. Um, so that's just one example of a provision that if you had called an attorney who who knew this area of the law would add it to your contract. It might the, A contract might be otherwise be perfect, but it might be missing that one clause or it might be missing a jurisdiction clause where you're dealing with some Ohio company or some company in California and your contract doesn't say that the dispute will be litigated here in Pennsylvania. People don't, you don't think about that, right? I mean, right, it's, right. no one thinks about that until you have to try to collect what on that. What an expense that would be too, yeah. Well, it's incredible. It, it usually is a deal killer. It, it usually is the, the, the deciding factor in why you don't go after that, that case. So again, in my collection example, let's say you have a $100,000 case. 
and there's no dispute you're owed that $100,000, but it's a California vendor that you're dealing with, and you don't have jurisdiction over them because you didn't have that clause in your contract. Now you got to go hire, and let's say they're in Los Angeles. Good luck finding a, Los, a good Los Angeles contract litigation attorney for less than $500 an hour. It's right. not going to happen. Right, so, right. so now, now you're, and, and you've got to travel there for the lawsuit. So you got your own expenses. So these are just some real simple examples of, you know, three sentences in a contract that could make the difference between whether you collect or not. Right, right. And I like the idea of having the lawyer come in for sort of a tune-up every year. I'm becoming a huge proponent of um, teams of consultants. So if you don't have in-house counsel and you don't have an in-house accountant, I'm really a fan now of when you're starting a project, bringing in just just to brainstorm. Okay, so legally, what would be the problem here? At the same time that you have either a, a strategic planner like myself or an accountant come in, just to really look for the the potholes that you're going to fall into. Yeah, it's it, you know you, you've probably seen this this challenge in your practice. It's a matter of of getting over that hurdle with the business owner that this is not a wasted expense. This is not um, this is not something they're not going to use. It, it's something that they really are going to benefit from. Maybe not that week, maybe not that month, but eventually they'll they'll remember back to that health checkup that you're describing, and they'll think, I better call my attorney. I, I better, you know, this this the red flag's going up, and and based on what we talked about at that meeting at the beginning of the year, I, I now know I should call them. Um, so you and I, as professionals trying to help these businesses, our biggest challenge is just getting them over the hurdle of of their fear of calling professionals like us to to get that help. Let's look at some specific types of contracts. So what do you have any uh, words of wisdom on employment contracts? Well, I, I think that um, you always have to look at employment contracts from from the view of how a court will look at them, because ultimately that's that's, you know, it's the the doomsday scenario. If, if the contract is disputed, it's ultimately going to get in front of a judge. So I always draft my employment contracts or, or when I'm being asked to review one that's been drafted by somebody else, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the court and how I would think the court would view it. So for example, on non-compete provisions in an employment agreement, uh, the more onerous, the more rigorous those those uh, non-competes are, the less likely a judge is going to be to enforce them. So if it's a five-year non-compete um, in an employment agreement or if it's got a, a geographic range that's just way more than is needed, you're only you're just inviting a judge to invalidate that part of the contract and potentially other parts of the contract just because they view the employer as having overreached. So... You want to you want to think about it from the terms of they're always going to lean towards the employee. Um, that, that's just sort of the you walk into those situations um, with the presumption in favor of the employee in in most cases. Um, so if you're drafting it for the employer, um, you just you don't want to be you don't want to be too heavy-handed. You you want to protect your legitimate business interests as best you can without overreaching, and so. You know, overall, that's how I, I view them. You know, the specific provisions, um, you really have to be careful on employment contracts. If your intent is not to create an employment for term and you want to keep that employ employment at will, you need to be very, very clear about that. Because once you get into the realm of having a written agreement with an employee, you start sliding towards that employee for a term uh, and not an employee at will. And you, in, you increase the potential for losing the ability to discharge that employee 
uh, at will. Um, so you, I, I, you have to be very careful when you start using written contracts with at will employees. Um, there's, I wouldn't say there's a presumption that that the simple fact that it's in writing makes it a non-employee at will situation, but it's certainly if you're putting pebbles on the scales, it's a scale, it's a pebble on on in favor of the employee once you put it in writing. So you just have to be real careful with that. This is a great example of needing a tune-up because imagine how old some of the employment contracts are that people have in existence, no doubt. Sure. And 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 and, and they may not they may not even be consistent with the the, the anti-discrimination laws that, that we have have enacted over the last couple of decades. Uh, and and you know the the, the disability laws that are out there and, and, and all kinds of laws that have come into effect in the last 20 years, if you're, th- th- I've seen it, you're right. There are companies out there that I've represented that are using contracts that I can, I can tell were written on a typewriter. And that's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah no doubt. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about intellectual property. Yeah, intellectual property obviously is, is, is a huge area for, uh, for small business and mid-sized business that are involved in in creating products or creating uh, content, um, you, you know you have you have the three basic tenets of intellectual property: copyright law, which which covers uh, the work itself, the the artwork, the the written word, um, the, you know the the design. Um, then you have the trademark aspect, which is going to protect names and slogans and and unique uh, identifiers for companies. And then of course you have patent law um, to protect inventions. I personally have, have been involved in the litigation end of these matters. I'm not a patent lawyer. Uh, that's, a, that's a very specialized area of law. And, and if so, when I have clients and I've had them, um, people within their organization will develop a, a, a product or something that, that is unique. Uh, we get them to patent attorneys here in Erie who can help them. Um, you know, if they come up with a, a catchy slogan or a, a neat design for their logo, I'll get them to a trademark lawyer. Um, usually, it's the same lawyer. There's a couple of real good ones here in Erie that uh, that specialize in that, and they have uh, the the qualifications to do that. And they work with the United States uh, Patent and Trademark Office to get those filings done. Um, when when they turn into litigation, um, that's some something I'm comfortable helping them with. I usually will, if it's a patent case, I'll engage. Uh, co-counsel that knows the engineering behind the patent, uh, because I don't pretend to know that, but in terms of presenting the case to a, a jury or a judge, that's something I'm comfortable doing. But there's, um, there's a, again, a need for companies to recognize when they have an intellectual property issue at, that, at the onset. And um, that's something that I try to counsel the business clients that do, you know, use me as, as their outside general counsel. I I look for, it, when they're describing issues, um, I look for potential intellectual property issues so that I can tell them, hey, maybe we want to talk to um, an attorney about trademarking that or you know, consider it at least. Find out what the cost is, what the benefit is versus the cost, and let's talk about that. So I try to help at least identify the intellectual property issues for them. I think that's really helpful. I think it's easy for perhaps a business owner or even just an executive of someone who's, who's not a business owner to think, well, we don't have anything that we need to patent or, you know, we're safe. We've, uh, if we needed to patent it, we would have heard by now. But when you look at, this is a heavily manufacturing area or, or at least um, has tenants to be a heavily manufacturing area. When you look at some of the websites for some of the manufacturers around here, um, they have a number of patents that they have listed. So it's not that it's out of the realm of possibility for a business owner to need patents. 
I think it's easy for people to think that it doesn't apply to them, though. Yeah, and there's also um, there's also a fear of the cost of, of obtaining a patent, it, and the, it is a it's time consuming and it is expensive. Um, I've heard I've heard different estimates from different patent lawyers, but I I think that you're at least at ten thousand dollars to do a patent, um, and that assumes that it it doesn't receive uh, challenges once it gets down to Washington and, and it starts being examined by a patent examiner. It, it is a very expensive process. It really depends on on the product that you're trying to protect, the, you know, the invention that you're trying to protect. I've had clients who I have um, thought should pursue patents, and they've told me, you know what, Michael, I, we, we don't want to put out there our design because when you do your patent, you're, you're showing the world, here's how our product works. Uh, they'd rather rely on the trade secret aspect and just keep just keep the matter private and and be better than the the competitors and beat them to the market and and gra- grab that market share rather than put it out there for the whole world to see in a patent. So you do see that that's and that's a business decision. You have to be really and, confident that you're going to keep all your employees that way too cuz they can take you with them. Absolutely. Well, and and there's ways to protect against that. So you can you can make that business decision to to not pursue the patent, but you can also have yourself protected with regard to those employees. Um, and and that, that starts with having agreements with them when you hire them, um, because trying to place those agreements on them once they're hired becomes more difficult. And we can talk about the specifics of that, but you know, most, um, most good employers that, that have, that are creating things, that are creating new things, um, you know, whether it's a, a medical device manufacturer or you know, a, a manufacturer of, of unique parts for, for the particularly medical industry, but electronics or what have you, you're going to have employees coming up with ideas. And, and if you have agreements with them that as soon as that idea pops into their head and they're working for you, it belongs to you, the employer. Um, and that's, that's called an assignment of inventions or assignment of intellectual property rights. That's an agreement that you should have with those folks when they start. And I think someone who doesn't know patents and trademarks, that sounds pretty harsh, but I think it's actually very common that intellectual property belongs to the employer. It, 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 yes, it should, because you're you're presumably paying that person, particularly an engineer, you're paying them a good salary and you're giving them benefits and you're providing them with the environment in which to, to create those inventions, uh, you know, the laboratories perhaps, or the equipment to come up with the ideas, the computers, uh, the staff. So it, it should be yours as the employer. That's what you're in the business to do. Um, you know, and there's always that, and I, I've had cases, I've had litigation cases where the employee will say, well, I developed it on my own time. You know, I did it at home. I was working, you know, late at night on it. Um, and that's a gray area. Um, so you can, you can protect against that gray, ar- gray area with, with strong language in those assignments. Um, you know, if it's an invention that has anything remotely to do with the core business that you work for, I don't care if you did it on the weekend or at night or while you're on vacation, it, it belongs to the employer um, or should if you've got a good agreement. As I go along with my my own company, I've become more enamored with the structure of organizations and how they can mitigate risk that way by outsourcing some of their more uh, risk-laden functions, I guess I would say. Do you have any thoughts on using contractors and how that Im- impacts your business? It's uh, it's definitely a good way to minimize the risk to your to your entity. The absolute key is the written agreement between you and that contractor. It needs to have solid provisions that make clear who's responsible for what 
who's liable for what, um, and, and indemnification provisions that make clear if there's an incident that involves that contractor, uh, that that contractor is responsible and that they have the ability to pay for the problem that they might create. So, you know, for example, if you're subcontracting out for, for delivery of your products and you don't want to have a fleet of, uh, of your own vehicles, you have to make sure that that subcontractor that you're using has sufficient assurance in, in the right kind of insurance um, and that they are not, um, they're not a, a sham corporation, that they have real assets so that if, if God forbid, they, they hurt somebody in the course of their delivering your product, um, you better believe you're both going to get sued, first of all. Understand that. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, it, when, that, when that case happens, it's not just going to be the contractor that gets sued. It's going to be everyone involved, whoever hired them, the driver, the company, the company that hired them. And if there's a company behind that, they're going to sue them. They're going to bring them all in. Um, so once that happens, now you have to fall back on those agreements that you have. And, and the agreement's great, but if you didn't do your homework to make sure that that, that actual driver, that, uh, that company that had the driver had insurance, well, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble because it's going to fall on your company. So that's one example, but you need to make sure that you have those good contracts and that the people have the right insurance and the right amount of insurance. Okay, let's move on a little bit to uh, the day-to-day for a business owner. So if they're trying to, or, or an executive, if they're trying to uh, decrease the amount of risk in their day-to-day operation, what kind of things have you seen that were effective in the past? I think that the, the business owners who think about the other side of, of the deal or think about the potential consequences of, of the action they're about to take, you know, the, the project they're about to undertake, um, they're, they're the ones that are best at mitigating their risk without even calling the lawyer because they've thought through how could this go wrong and, and they've, they've built in ways to try to prevent that. Um, those not there's not many business owners like that um, and it's not a fault of theirs it's it's more a function of their crazy daily life that they don't have time to sit there and reflect on okay if this if I do this this is these are the potential outcomes that are negative and how can I mitigate those it, it's just not realistic that no and I think part of being a business owner is that you're a risk taker and so I think those two things kind of play off of each other there yeah it's it's yeah, in some ways, it's it's an it's it's hard to ask a, a really good entrepreneur who is a risk taker to be as reflective as we'd want them to be. Um, so so as a result, they have to rely on on other professionals to be their their you know the the the, the, the you know the, the the shoulder the angel and the devil on the shoulder so to speak. Somebody has to be in their ear, whether it's their their in house counsel, uh, outside counsel, or or you know a risk manager within their their entity. Somebody needs to be there to tell them, yeah, that's, this sounds like a great project, but you know, we need to make sure that we've, we've mitigated this risk or that risk. And um, you know, it's, it's, it starts with having people on the ground there with you in the company who are looking at things uh, for potential problems, and, and it also includes using your attorney. We live in an area that is laden with snow frequently, and so do you have any comments about how people can um, – work on slip and falls? Well, sure. It's, um, you know, slip and fall cases in, in this, uh, in this area are very prevalent. Um, and in some ways the owners benefit from the, the hardy nature of, of eerie residents. Uh, when these cases go to 
a jury, oftentimes the Erie jurors are have the attitude, well, you live in Erie. You should you should have boots on. You should know how to walk in the snow. And whether they salted it or not uh, really shouldn't matter. This is Erie. You know, get over it. Uh, there is there is that attitude among among uh, Erie residents. We're hardy and we're used to it. Um, so in some ways, uh, Erie um, businesses benefit from from that general attitude. But I wouldn't fall back on that. If I if I were a business owner with a public sidewalk or an entranceway that that was exposed to the elements, I wouldn't rely on that. I would I would have a a very uh, regimented maintenance program that was written out and that was followed by my maintenance people or the employees that were assigned to shovel or salt, and I would document it. I would have a log, uh, a log showing when the shoveling occurred, when the salting occurred. Um, that would be invaluable in a case where, you know, a month after the fact, you find out there's a claim against you for somebody who fell, you know, the previous month. Um, if you don't have a log, you're relying on your, your, your employee, whoever's duty it was to salt that day saying, yeah, I, I think I salted that day. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, you know, it, it, a lot of times the people will come into the claim with a photograph, um, and, and so that'll tell the, that'll tell a lot what the condition was like. But we've certainly see, seen cases come into our office where the uh, injured person has no photograph of what it looked like that day, and what it looks like the next day is really not relevant because it changes. It changes by the hour um, in Erie with the weather. So um, having a good a good system of logs and and having and making sure your employees are actually doing the work, um, you just have to be on top of it. It's it is. It's an it's a area of the law where you can certainly minimize your exposure. I mean, you don't have to keep your sidewalk perfectly clear at all times. There is there's an uh, there's allowable accumulations, uh, but but once it's there for a while and you haven't salted it or or shoveled it, you're going to have problems. I love the idea of a log, and it especially speaks to me with people who have multiple locations, mm -hmm. and they assume that one thing that's happening at the office that they're frequently at is happening at all of them or all of the locations, and um, they think that there's going to be a log that can be produced, but there is not. So I, I love the idea of um, not only having a system in place to have someone responsible for that, but also having a, a checkup regularly to make sure that that's actually happening. It, it is, and, and the other thing that, that um, business owners can do, and, and this is somewhat of a double-edged sword is is with the prevalence of security cameras and the and the relative um, inexpensiveness of, of video cameras and video surveillance systems you can have cameras all over your building and all over the exterior at very little cost now and and they the footage can be saved for months on hard drives again at, at relatively low cost with systems that the owner themselves can install or have employees install those videos can be great evidence for you as the employer uh, to counter a claim. They can also be evidence that's going to be used by the plaintiff to show that you didn't do your job. So that it, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. I, I, I think if you're on top of your employees and you're following your systems, that video is going to help you many more times than it will hurt you. Um, so I, I'm a proponent of having your entrances and, and exits uh, with video video surveillance. It also, you know most of the systems now you can view remotely. So if you do have multiple locations, you as the business owner or, or your manager who's in charge of, you know, looking at the locations can look on the camera right on their computer and say, and see that there's an accumulation of the snow in front of, you know, this store on the west side. 
call somebody up, hey, get out there and shovel that thing yeah. before somebody falls. Right, you know? right. So, so I, I, on the whole, I, I, I think that video uh, is, is a, a tool for the employer that's going to help them more than it's going to hurt them. What about um, training on a regular basis? Anything about annual training or safety? Yeah, it's um, as a lawyer, we love it because it provides evidence that we're going to use to counter a lawsuit. Um, so, for example, um, you know, I've had employers who um, have faced allegations of, of sexual harassment and they had training programs and, and systems in place to train against that. That's a helpful that's a helpful thing to be able to point to when you're facing that lawsuit uh, as the employer to say that we took as many steps as we could to address this issue with our employees. You know, look back. We trained them on this date, and this was the this was the training manual that we used, and this is what was discussed. And as soon as we found out about employee X doing what what he was alleged to have done, we took action pursuant to our plan, our written plan. Um, you know, that that may win the day um, in terms of the employer's liability on that claim. Um, if if not win the day, it, it certainly will mitigate against. Um, you know, the, the type of damages that they would face if they did everything they reasonably could to try to prevent an ugly situation from occurring. Okay. So any more examples of, of cases that you've had? Sure. The, the, the thing that I've seen come up in the 22 years that I've been doing this is that people will, will go to their lawyer or they'll go online and they'll form an LLC or they'll, they'll form a, a corporation and they will um, think that I've done that, so now I'm protected. Um, if something happens within the business, uh, there's an accident while one of my guys is out in the field, uh, one of my employees, or I owe money to someone in the company, I, I won't be personally liable. My, my home and my car and my boat, those won't be potential assets that, a, that a, uh, a plaintiff could come after. They think that by having formed those companies that they're good. And the fact is, is that they're not. That's just the first step. And, and I have, uh, whenever I form a company for someone, I give them a memo that I insist they read. And I, I even talk about what's in the memo before I, I send them on their way to start their, their life as a new business owner. And, and, and I tell them, you, you have to engage with the public as that business. And that sounds so simple, but I have seen cases and I've been involved in cases where where LLC owners have created personal liability because they didn't follow the basic formalities of having the company name on the letterhead, for example, or by signing a contract that does not identify the fact that they're doing it in their role as president of oh, ABC that's a really Corp. Good point. Yep. Yeah, and, and it, it happens every day, um, and it's easily avoidable, but it, but it creates, if you don't do it, it creates a whole new avenue for recovery and a whole new level of, of heartache for the business owner because they could have avoided it ha had they used, and oftentimes if, if they'd used the contracts that we as their lawyers have created for them, you know, because we make sure it's, it's clearly denoted who the entity is that the other party is contracting with. And it's clearly denoted that the owner is, is signing in their capacity as president, not as sole proprietor. So, um, I see that, and it's 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 frustrating because it was easily avoidable. Um, it's great if you're the litigation attorney because you're gonna you're gonna have a good engagement um, trying to defend that case, but it all could have been avoided by properly um, 
denoting who who you are when you're when you're engaging in in a in a business with people, and and the other thing that I'll share with you is that, and I had a, had a case um, down in Venango County where uh, the company had no money, um, it had no assets. Uh, we were going to win a big judgment against them. We had a great great case. It was a construction case, and um, I got tipped off by a former disgruntled employee that you might want to look into the books because this. Uh, this guy's been using his bank account like his own piggy bank. And he was the sole owner of the company. And, and I got into his bank records and his debit card uh, transactions. And, and it was, you know, replete with personal purchases, clearly personal, things that could not have been used in construction business, Beanie Babies and, you know, monthly uh, subscriptions to uh, arcade, uh, you know, for, for online gaming. Um, all kinds of money going to a sister company that had nothing to do with the construction business. Um, he was propping that business up with another. All of that would have been fine because it was his money. He was the sole owner. All he had to do was write himself a check, put it into the other business account or put it into his personal account. But he didn't. He used that business account as his own account. And probably the whole time is thinking, who cares? It's my money. I, I'm the only owner. What does it matter? You know? It mattered. It mattered a lot. In that case, the jury fact, excuse me, the jury found that he was personally liable for the judgment. Um, that made a big difference in the case. So that's I've used that war story with, and that happened early in my career back in, I think it was like two thousand seven. We had that trial. So ever since, I've told that story to every business client I've incorporated, and I've used those examples. And I hope that by using a real story, it drives it home finally. You know, if you're up at Home Depot and you're buying stuff for your business, great, use the card. But if you're buying stuff for your house, use your own card. Transfer the money online. You can, you can, you can do that online now. You don't even have to write yourself a check anymore. You can, you can transfer it between your company and yourself and make sure you put in the memo line, member draw. It's that simple. And, and if you do that, uh, you avoid a lawyer like me coming into court in front of a jury and saying that you used your business account as your personal piggy bank. So message to all the business owners yeah, out there. Very strong message. And this topic comes up in a different fashion on this show occasionally as far as valuing a business at the end when you're going to sell it. Mm -hmm. The first thing that you would do as an accountant would be to take out all of the personal expenses of the business owner sure. to see what the actual in cash flow is. But I hadn't thought about it as far as um, blurring the lines or how much they could be liable for as far as what the actual assets of the company would be if they hadn't been removing all of that money. Sure. It, 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 you know, in, our, in that particular case, um, had had that owner not spent all of that that money from the construction company that was fairly successful on a failing uh, online business that he had by paying the, the payroll for that other business, there would have been money available for our judgment. There, there would have been a, a source of recovery uh, for for the, the liability that he had, um, but but it wasn't there. So we had to go after him personally. So any other examples that you want to bring up? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, I think I, I think I've probably scared your listeners enough at no, this point. <laughs> and I hope that they take it as uh, words of wisdom for them to really reflect upon. I think these are just great, great insights for them. Uh, I, I think any opportunity to mitigate risk before it happens if um, is something that people really need to take to heart. Absolutely. So um, let's summarize some of your key points. One, what would you say your first one is? Don't be afraid to call your lawyer. And if you don't have a, a go-to lawyer and you're a new business owner, find one. Find, meet a few of them. 
Call me, call several. I mean, find somebody that you connect with on a personal level that you can get along with because if your business is going to survive and thrive um, and you're going to be in it for the long haul, you need to have not only a really good accountant, but you need to have a good business lawyer, a good general business lawyer that you can call upon at a moment's notice that you can text at nine o'clock at night that's going to answer you. And, and, you know, I try to do that, but I'm not the only one. We've got great lawyers in this city. Some would say too many, but we, we do have good, we do have good lawyers in this city and there's good business lawyers and, and there's, there's, there's a fit for every business owner out there. Find yourself a good business lawyer and use them. That's, that's the takeaway. And that's not, again, it's not for self-preservation. I mean, there's plenty of work out there for us. It really will save you money in the long run. It, it, there's no question it will save you money in the long run. I think uh, just two other summary points. One was use the contracts that you have. Yeah, if you're going to pay us to do contracts, I mean, it, it only stands to reason that you use them. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes um, you know, we, we produce them in a Word format that, that you can update. Um, I don't encourage my clients to update the material provisions, but you know, if you move your office or you change your phone number or your website or your logo, go ahead and change them. We, yeah, we, send, them, to date. we send them to you in Word. But you know, if, if you've got... Uh, specific issues, a, a, a unique deal that maybe doesn't fit the cookie cutter contract that we did for you, call us, send us an email, tell us what the deal's about. Within an hour, we might be able to modify the contract. And, you know, depending on the hourly rate, I, I think it's probably going to end up being worth it, no matter who you're, what lawyer you're using and what their hourly rate is. Um, use those contracts that we drafted for you. Don't be afraid to call us if you want us to modify them. And uh, the last one would probably be document what you're doing. Yeah, um, you know, logs within a business. Um, nobody likes filling them out. It's extra paperwork, um, but but they can be invaluable in defending a case, uh, whether it's uh, an employee issue or a slip and fall, like we talked about. Having those logs and that and that documentation in the file, it gives us something to work with. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Our guest today has been Michael Agresti. We've been talking about ways for business owners to avoid risk and to minimize their legal costs in the future by doing some things up front. I think he's had some great insights for us. Uh, Michael, if people want to get a hold of you, if they uh, are interested in your services or talking more about any of these topics, how would they get a hold of you? I work for the Marsh Schaff Law Firm, and we, uh, we can be reached at 456 5301 my email is magresti at marshlaw.com. That's probably the best way to reach me. I, I, I take emails at all times in, in all places uh, on my phone. So if folks want to reach out to me, that's probably the best way to do it. But certainly welcome their phone calls. And uh, you know, I, I, I would say that um, in almost all cases, the first meeting with me is, is a no cost, no risk, no pressure consultation. Uh, come in and meet me if, if we hit it off and, and I can be of help to you. Great. If, if, if we spend an hour together and I never see you again, I wish you well, and, and I hope that you help Erie grow. Excellent. And those uh, links for the phone number and the email will be in the description for this podcast, so you're able to get them there. If you are interested in more um, about Resource and Governance Consulting, or RGC, feel free to look for the links as well. The website is www.resourceandgovernance.com, or you can contact me directly at lmiller at resourceandgovernance.com. Thanks for listening today, and remember to stay focused.